This past week at Grace, we not only had a group of people going to Atlantic City in missions, but also on Saturday there was a food distribution. There was a grief share ministry on Wednesday night. There were visits to the hospital. There were other counseling sessions. There were a number of things that go on even though it's the summertime. Lots of people involved in various ministries and activities. The green team was here sprucing up the property on, t- on Wednesday. So many things are happening that we don't always see. So many people involved in serving that we don't always appreciate uh, all that goes on even in the summertime. This morning we turn in the second week to our Gifts of the Spirit study and we come to Ephesians 4. There are about five passages in the New Testament that mention spiritual gifts at some length. This is the second one. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so now let us give attention to God's Word together. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. Let's bow together. How precious, O Lord, is your word to us, for it guides us and helps us, it gives us insight, and by your spirit it builds us up, bringing us not only to faith in Christ but also to maturity. And we pray that this morning that process might be continued as we gather in your name, and we acknowledge again that we are but beggars desperately in need of your help, asking for your guidance leaning upon your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I said last week that this is a section of the Bible that Kevin and I have neglected and for which we apologize, not having said more about it over the years, perhaps assuming too much about our understanding because the concepts are pretty simple and yet very profound and worked out in a variety of ways. And this is not something that the outer world is all that interested in. I mean, they, if they have any interest at all in Christianity, it seems to be about morality, the things that we stand for. 
And they don't really much care how we organize ourselves internally. And yet if we don't organize ourselves internally or rightly according to the scriptures, then we're not prepared to meet the world. and not prepared to answer their questions and to show them Christ. So to summarize now today in the outline, the Bible describes the church as a body. This was true last week in 1 Corinthians 12, now again this week in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Notice verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Verse 16, from him, Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. The Bible speaks of the church in several metaphors. One of them is as a family. Another one is as a building. But the one that's used the most often and particularly related to spiritual gifts is the image of a body, a multifaceted, multidimensional body. This is not just a collection of people, however, as a club or other association might be, a company, a military unit. It's not just an assembly of people, but it is a group of people who are connected There is an invisible connection. We share connections with our countrymen. We have a common heritage, a common document uh, that governs us, the Constitution, a a common Congress that rules over us, a common court. But we are not connected in the same way as citizens of America as we are within the body of Christ. We are a people connected. We have unity and diversity repeated over and over and over again is this concept. What is the base of it is that we have an organic, real, but invisible union which exists in the church of Christ because all believers are united to Christ and they are also all united to each other. So it's a triangle. We are all on the bottom leg of it. We're all uh, connected to each other. We are also all connected to Christ. This cannot be denied. cannot be broken. We may have differences of opinion, we may be estranged for a time, but the union, the real organic union between believers is continual. It goes forward. It it exists regardless of what we might say or do. That is to say, he dwells in each one of us by faith, and therefore there exists an unavoidable attraction among believers, even with those with whom we have many differences, because we love the same person. And he unites us. The same spirit dwells within each one of us and brings us all together. So there is an indissoluble, invisible, eternal union with Christ and his work at Calvary that we share in. And that's how the church is connected. We're not connected simply because we're Presbyterian or because we're evangelical or because we are American Christians. We are connected in Christ And the Spirit has been given to every one of us. The fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit have been given to every one of us for the mutual benefit, as we'll see in a moment. For the common good, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So the predicate, the beginning is that we are connected. Now, just as creation is beautifully diverse and varied, having one creator, so the church of Jesus Christ is beautifully diverse and varied, having one Lord. We look out at the creation and we see all kinds of differences. Animals, plants, inanimate things. 
and we find them in all different climates and all different sections of the world. And, and when we look in the microscopic world or the telescopic world, we see tremendous variety in one creator. The Bible says all of that came from one source. And the Bible says that the church of Jesus Christ, as varied as it is, many races, ethnic, cultural groups, languages, cross the generations, nevertheless has one author, one body. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called, verse 4, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Absolutely foundational. We are all connected in Christ. And Christ is the author of all that we are. Therefore, God determines who gets what in the realm of spiritual gifts. When it comes down to the practicality of it, as he says in verse 7, but to each one of us grace has been given us as Christ apportioned it. So there are different kind of gifts. The diversity is part of his plan. Just as he has made a marvelously variegated universe, so he has taken the church and made a tremendously, he's built the differences into it. He might have made us uniform. He might have made us all alike or very, very similar, but he didn't. It seems that he went out of his way, just as in his creation, to make us amazingly diverse. And all kinds of opinions and ideas and experiences and cultures and races and languages and on and on and on. But into this, he gives these spiritual gifts. Into this diversity, which is supposed to be based on the unity we have in Christ, he gives this, these spiritual gifts. Now let's define them here briefly. A spiritual gift is an enablement for the purpose of meeting the needs of people. That's why he gives these gifts. For the building up of the body. Now, I want to broaden it just a little bit because some of these gifts are evangelistic. And so it, it is also for the benefit of unbelievers that he gives these gifts. And when we are functioning as the church as we should, the, the, the world takes note. So I want to broaden it just briefly. But most of the focus of this passage in Ephesians 4 is on the benefit of the church. Notice toward the end. Verse 15, from him the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love just as each part does its work. So spiritual gifts is an enablement for the purpose of meeting the needs of people given, the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit on the basis of God's free grace, nothing that we did, in such a way that people are brought under the Lordship of Christ with the result that the body is built up in quality and quantity. That's the reason for the gifts. Not so that we would be proud or that we would show off or that we would praise ourselves. The gifts are given for the benefit of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, as we saw last week, for the common good. So spiritual gifts, whatever it is, that the gifts that you have are not for your benefit and not to build up your circumstances, but they are for the benefit of and the circumstances of the rest of the body for the benefit of others. It's an enablement. It is not what you are when, these, when we're talking about spiritual gifts. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It is what you do. It's an ability to help others, to edify them. It's something given to you by God. 
and it is on the basis of God's free grace. What makes a spiritual gift a gift is that God uses you through the deployment of it to help other people spiritually. We may claim no merit in attaining these gifts. So, in a marvelously diverse body are given gifts and abilities for the benefit of others. Simple concept. Not simple to apply. Very often confusing, as we'll see. But the application in this first point is that no one can take credit for their spiritual gifts. Just as Christ apportioned them, and of course he said this several times in 1 Corinthians 12 last week, that God was the one who distributes the gifts, and no one can take credit for them, or no one should feel deprived because one doesn't have one that someone else has. You can take that up with God, but it's his doing. The great blessing of spiritual gifts can also be a cause, however, for explosive division within the body. So Paul begins his teaching in this section with a call to unity. Verse 3 cannot be any plainer. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make, go out of your way. Everything you can do to overlook a fault, to build a relational bridge, to do what you can to keep, to preserve, to hold on to. We can't, it's not something that we gain, it's not something that we achieve or attain, it's something that's given to us, but we are called to hold on to it. Perhaps a little bit of an illustration might be that um, back in the days of our, the founding of our country, it was uh, one of the founding, they were rejoicing in their freedom, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the comment was made, well now you have a country, can you keep it? Now you have your freedom. Can you keep it? Now you have your gifts. Can you use them to his glory? Can you maintain a unity that has been given as a gift from God? We do not find it. We do not grasp it. We do not create it or gain it. It is ours, but it must be kept. This unity that is invisible and indissoluble in Christ... Nevertheless, is called upon, we are called upon to work to, to maintain. So when the eye says to the foot, I don't see it that way, why is that surprising? Can the eye and the foot have the same perspective? By definition, not. The eye is five feet and more higher in perspective than the foot, and the foot doesn't even have any eyes. So you see, he has built into this illustration and built into the church a diversity that is potentially explosive, divisive, and disruptive. And of course, history has shown that it can be. But along with it comes this illustration, this, this admonition. <coughs> Excuse me, verse... verse well, it's, it really starts in verse 1. I urge you to live a life... Worthy of the calling you have received. You have been called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to, that's a high, high calling. You have to live for him and according to his standards. That's a tremendous thing. So be completely humble and gentle. And be patient, bearing with one another in love. And therefore make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul begins this section by pleading, by exhorting, by encouraging them to consider these things to be important. And to not trample on, for the hand to trample on the foot or the foot to trample on the hand and vice versa. Work together. 
Make every effort. That's a strong call. Do all that you can. Go out of your way to keep the unity of the bond of peace. Now next week I want to talk about the various specific gifts that are listed in the New Testament. But today in our time here as we come to the Lord's table, we want to ask the question, how does he call us to these minutes? How does he call us to use these gifts? Well, to do answer that question is to review pretty much what I've said already. He calls us to ministry by calling us to faith in Christ. Each one of you has been given a gift. He says, now go use it. Okay, how do I do that? I have abilities and gifts that he's given to me. How do I do that? Well, it begins by recognizing that the foundation is our being called to faith in Christ. He gave us these gifts. He gave us the ones that he wants us to have. And he's putting us to work for the benefit of others, for the building up of the body and the extending of the kingdom. So as the very beginning of asking the question, what does God want me to do? He already gives the answer in general terms by saying, I want you to benefit other people. Whatever you do, it's for the benefit of others, not for yourself. Or so that you could feel good about yourself. This is for the benefit and upbuilding of the body. Again, verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Not so that they would be famous in, their, in the execution of their gifts, but so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Are you tired of hearing this? Over and over again he says the same thing. And there's a methodolo methodological reason, I think. He, he knows how hard it is for us to get this on a practical level. In the classroom, from the pulpit, it's simple enough. Diversity, unity. Unity, diversity. Every part working together. But here, and last week in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul labors. He slows everything down to say over and over and over again that you have been given gifts for the purposes of others, that this unity and diversity needs to be built upon. So there, he says one seven times in the first few verses. But as we get to work, we must clearly understand that we are part of both a unified and diverse body. If you don't get this, you will not live a life worthy of the high calling. And as a matter of fact, since the days of Pentecost, when all the languages were heard and understood, the church of Jesus Christ has mightily struggled with this. And we meet it right away, right after Pentecost. What happens? The Gentiles become a part of the church. And they're unacceptable in almost every way. Historically, their diets are different. Their knowledge of the Old Testament is, uh, is less than kindergarten. Their personal habits are disgusting. They're not Jews. We don't know these people. And immediately, after the glorious blessing of the resurrection, the ascension into heaven, and the, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the church is thrown into a trial. And we have to say that it got a big red F. Right? Paul, Peter, James, John, 
Timothy, they all really struggled with this. The same concepts were there. Indeed, Paul, in his own mind, was learning and teaching them. But they really struggled. They did not want the Gentiles to be a part of their life. They were happy for them to be away. And when they came in, they did not want to deal with the practices of the Gentiles, eating meat that had been offered to idols, and etc. They had wanted nothing to do with it. It was hard. But the Lord seems to have caused this to happen and called them to these trials for the benefit of his kingdom. So to go on, every Christian regenerated by Jesus Christ on the, is, is regenerated by Jesus Christ on the same basis. Again, I'm repeating myself. I've said this already, but there is no difference. Therefore, every difference between Christians is a relatively minor thing. I'm not saying there are no differences. I'm saying that in comparison to the weightiness of our salvation and the work of Christ on the cross, it's, it's minor. Minor. Small thing. Maybe not culturally. Maybe not emotionally. Maybe not in other ways. But it's a minor thing because the final act has been done. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Different backgrounds and paths to faith in Christ, but essential unity as we live together as his body. Our salvations are all equally miraculous because they all have their foundation in Christ. And so the people of South Africa to whom the Staffords go, the people of Kenya from whom the Hines have come, bear an organic and real unity with us, though we've never seen them probably won't, but they have nevertheless been a part of us through faith in Jesus Christ. The problem isn't with the people in South Africa and the people in Kenya, though. The problem is with the people here, the people that we encounter, the people that are different from us, the people that see things differently. How do we work that out? And finally, one more time, notice the diversity of the body. When you enter the body of Christ, you begin to understand for the first time that you have a real individuality, that you have been created by God. You are not just a sum of your experiences. He has put you together. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, prepared in advance with good works, prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's poetry. He is making special things of each one of us. Each one of you is unique. Each one of you is God's artwork. And though people are different than you, he is at work in you to make something great of your life. So how, if this is difficult, that is bringing unity and diversity together, how does, it, how does it happen? The answer is Jesus does it. Jesus brings the church and keeps the church together in spite of all of its problems. He distributes the gift. He calls people into service. He places them within the body to serve. Jesus is able to give these gifts because he descended to do battle with our enemies and he ascended victorious over them. The Bible gives us a little insight here. It's somewhat parenthetical and briefly stated, but what he's saying is a mighty king has gone to battle. He came down from earth and fought our enemies. And in defeating our enemies, just like every other mighty king, he gained the spoils of his victory. He gained the, uh, the, the blessings of having defeated the foes and powers of darkness. Those blessings are the spiritual gifts which he distributes to us. They are our benefit. He's the one who claimed the victory. He's the one who defeated our enemies. But the gifts that we have come as a direct result of his victory as he distributes them to us. 
So every Christian has benefited from Jesus' victory and has been given not only eternal life, but also spiritual gifts. How do I find out what mine are? And how do I use them? We'll talk just a few moments about that now. But before we do, let me say again, you don't call yourself. You don't gift yourself. Your position, your intelligence, your talents, they don't call you. You don't get called because you belong to a prominent family or to a low one. You don't get called because you're a nice guy or a patient woman. You get called because he chooses to call you and to give you these gifts. Other Christians participate in that calling process, yeah. When we do not get a subjective call to service without the objective confirmation of the greater body. We'll talk about that a little bit like next week. But notice that Jesus oversees all of this. He purchased the gifts at the cross. He distributes the gifts as he sees fit. And he calls his spirit to administer them within and among us. So what should I look for as I seek to use my gifts? Just some practical suggestions and applications in conclusion. What spiritual gifts do I have? We talk more about this next week as we look down the list. But discovering your spiritual gifts begins with these steps. First of all, affinity. You have a burden. Somebody says something and it penetrates your mind and reaches your heart. You hear a lot of things, a lot of appeals. You hear of a lot of needs, but somehow this one got your attention. Somehow this one stopped the clock and you, and you were riveted by it and you felt something inside. You were arrested by some kind of need, some kind of opportunity. And more than that, instead of passing by on the other side, you say, I want to stop and bend over and help this man. I want to do it. There was nobody around with a good Samaritan. I mean, uh, nobody said, hey, why don't you take care of that man? In fact, the other people were doing the other, other things. But he felt an inner call, and he stopped. He wanted to. Clearly, he wanted to. And he followed through. Do you have a burden, an interest, a desire to do a certain kind of ministry? Do you, would you like to, I mean, where does your heart turn? What are your inclinations? Many of those are divinely inspired. What is your desire? It starts with that. Ask God to show you what gifts he has given to you. Some of these are obvious. But many of them are latent. You have uh, let me make this prediction. Now, you have spiritual gifts that you haven't used because you haven't identified and deployed them. You see yourself in a certain light, but there are probably some things that God has given you that you haven't used. Ask Him to show you. Secondly, you have an ability. As you get involved and you follow your desires, do you see fruit? The man put him, put him on his own beast. He was able to care for his, his wounds on the road to Jericho. He was able to minister to him, put him on the beast, and take him on to the inn. He had the ability to do it. An older man couldn't have picked him up. A poorer man couldn't have cared for him. Uh, a, a man without a horse would have had to carry him on his back. and had no way to get him there. But this man had the ability to help this man. And was all there in place. And he took that ability, God, worked, God inspiring him, and he, and he went forth. Do 
Do, you, do others encourage you to move in that direction? To use those gifts? Do you have what it takes to meet the need? You might have the desire, but not the giftedness, so look further. This can be frustrating, because you may have a great desire to, let's say, sing. And God didn't give you the voice for it. That doesn't mean you can't sing, but it probably does mean you can't sing publicly. <laughs> Loudly. You might have the desire, but not the giftedness. So keep looking. Maybe you can play an instrument. Maybe you can do something else. If your desires and gifts do not match, keep looking. Other matches are possible. And glorious results. Glorious surprises will result. So first of all, you need an affinity. You need a desire. And then secondly, you need the giftedness. Thirdly, you need an opportunity. Is there an open door for your service? Do others want to support and work with you and give you an opening to serve? Up until this point, everything is theoretical. I feel an inclination. I want to do it. I'm looking for an opportunity. Here's your opportunity. Give it a try. You don't have to take off on the first... The first time you get on the bicycle, you, you might fall off. You may not just go right ahead and, 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 and ride. But the opportunity is there. And others are helping you, and they're encouraging you, and you get stronger. Finally, reflection. Do I, I, over time, have a sense of God's leading along this path, or was it just my idea? I've known several ministers who went into the ministry and went all the way through seminary and did it because their family wanted them to. Now, that's a long course. That's undergraduate work, that's graduate school, that's preaching, that's looking for a church, that's involvement in the church. That's a long run. And there were indications along the way that it wasn't a good fit, but the family wanted him to. Let's not put anybody through that. Ask yourself, do I have a sense of God's leading over along this path, or was it just my idea? Did I just sort of see myself doing that and wanted to be that guy? Or was God really calling me to do it? This is a sobering and important part of this process. Because when you are doing what God wants you to do, you have tailwinds. You are pushed along. It is made easier. It's hard work because the devil opposes you, but it's made easier by the fact that you are gifted and called to this very thing. But if you're trying to do something because you want to be that guy or that girl, then you'll have headwinds. And you'll, it'll never quite work, and you'll be frustrated along the way. Well, that's a lot today. Gifts of the Spirit is a large subject. But now we turn to the table and the one who distributes the gifts, the one who gives them, and we remember their source. Nobody does anything in the kingdom of God apart from his calling and gifting. And we're all one body together now gathered at this table. And in all of our diversity, we are called to be one because we are called to make this, keep this unity in the bond of peace, in the, in the spirit in the bond of peace. So we rejoice. It's a high calling.
It's a wonderful thing. Let's love each other. Shall we pray together? Guide us, we pray, Lord, in this time now of of reflection at your table, of confession and acknowledgement of who you are. Thank you for descending into earth and defeating our enemies, triumphing them over over them by the cross and giving us the gifts of the Spirit so that we might serve you. And help us as we struggle to learn what our gifts are and to deploy them. We pray that you might lead us clearly and help us to see what you want us to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table now, we recognize this is the meal of the church. In unity with all of the church throughout histories, Jesus gave it to his disciples at that Passover and said, Do this until I come back. All of you, wherever you go, among whatever people you you settle, wherever the church takes root, this is the meal for us, unified in him, our head. And so it's our privilege, it's 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 our right as believers to join together in this meal. What's offered to us now, Jesus says, is grace, it's energy, it's strength, it's endurance, tangibly and spiritually, given to feed and nourish us that we would be using our gifts and that we would be seeing him work through us to build up his church. As such, it's, of course, not something that we do as just a ritual. It's something that we do because we believe. If this is your faith, you're welcome to it, to this table. This is the table of the Lord. It's not the table of our church. So even if you're not a member here, if you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome to join with us. Of course, as Scripture says, if you're not a believer in Christ, then this meal doesn't make sense to you. It's not, it's not yours to take. It's not for anyone. It's for God's people. And, so, and as such, then, I invite you to join with us. There on page 6 is a declaration of faith. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. In a very different location, at a very different time, God's people have been declaring what they know to be true, and we can declare it as well with them. And I invite you all to stand as we read responsively here. If indeed this is your faith, then respond by reading the bold print there. The Apostles' Creed contains affirmations of faith in many things. What do we mean by saying he ascended into heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was lifted up from the earth to heaven and will be there for our good until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make a goal of our lives, not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Please pray with me. Indeed, Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for coming and inaugurating this meal for us, and for being the sacrifice that takes away our sins. Spirit, we thank you for making us believe 
for helping us to see that these things are true. Now nourish us and strengthen us as we participate together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Scripture does tell us that it was on the night when Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body. He said, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. Jesus said, this is my body, it's broken for you, take and eat. In the same way too, on that night he took the cup and he said, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this also in remembrance of me. 
blood of Christ shed for you because he loves you. Take and drink. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this meal that you provided for us. Nourish and strengthen us by your grace, through your spirit, that we may serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Receive now the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now for this day and for the week ahead and forever. Amen. Go in peace.